Well, with that being said, let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and I want to um, go ahead and set the text before us. I'm going to be reading the first verse of the second chapter of the book of Acts. And uh, the word of the Lord says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we ask you now for you to enlighten us and uh, give us to understand your sacred word and build us up by the word that you have given to us. Uh, We worship you. And help us to be better worshipers. In Christ's name, amen. The year was uh, 1901. And in fact, it was the morning hours of the very first day of that year. There was a group of Bible school students who had gotten together for a prayer meeting uh, on New Year's, New Year's Eve, so the previous night, and they had been together all night. They were seeking for a special encounter with the Spirit of God. They were led by a man by the name of Charles Parham. He uh, was their teacher and their professor, and he, uh, being of a Wesleyan holiness background had come to believe that there was such a thing as a second blessing that Christians needed to strive for. And then he he also came to believe and to teach that that second blessing uh, consisted or was one and the same thing as what Acts speaks of as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So he wanted to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he led this group of students in that quest. And they had spent some time together trying to find out what that meant and whether it would come, the miracle of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And eventually in those morning hours, one of his students asks uh, Parham to pray for her. And as Parham is praying for her, she begins to speak in what Parham said was the Chinese language. So she's speaking in Chinese, and that becomes then an effect that goes to other people. Parham himself speaks in other languages, the students also, and 
Subsequently, they began to hold revivals, and in those revivals, there were as many as 20 languages that were reported, people speaking Russian, Spanish, Japanese, Bulgarian, so forth and so on. And that is the roots of the Pentecostal movement. It was um, no doubt one of the most uh, influential events of the 20th century for the church, because out of the Pentecostal movement, then you have the growth of the charismatic movement. When Pentecostalism or its teachings permeated other denominations, like the Baptists and the Methodists, so forth and so on, then now you have the charismatic movement with nowadays more than, a, more than half a billion adherents. So this has been uh, an incredibly significant uh, event for the Church of Jesus Christ. But all of this, the Pentecostal movement, was uh, founded on the premise that what happened here in the chapter that we just read, in the text that we just read, is normative, that it needs to happen to all Christians. That is what the movement itself is founded or grounded on. And um, I want to take you through these verses. And these are the verses in which the church of Jesus Christ is born. And um, I want us to look at the fact that this isn't normative. This isn't something that we are to expect. But rather, this is a one-time event. This is um, a, a miraculous event that was as unique as the first creation of the universe, as unique as the incarnation of the Son of God. This was the birth of the church. And what is happening here is that God is uh, putting um, the people of Christ together into a body. And in order to do so, he is creating a deep and abiding impression, an impression that would never be shaken off the pages of history. The Spirit was coming. The Spirit was falling upon these people, a people distinct from uh, the Jewish nation as a covenant people. Now there is a new covenant. And so what is happening here? is unique. There's a unique impression that is being made here. Even consider the background. Look at verse 1. It says that this happened in Pentecost, right? When the days of Pentecost, the, when the day of Pentecost had come. Uh, Pentecost was one of the three mandatory Jewish festivals you had for the Israelites. They had Passover, they had Pentecost, and then they had the Feast of Booths. Uh, Pentecost was... Uh, um, celebrated in what we know as a, you know, May or June in between those two months. And at that time, um, that was when the last crop of harvest ripened. And so the people brought the first fruits of their grain harvest to Jerusalem. And by that, what they were doing was they were acknowledging that those fruits from the harvest were 
from God himself. And so they dedicated these first fruits to God as a pledge for the next harvest. They were believing that God was going to add to them in the following year. And so they came into this festival. It was actually a time of joy and celebration. They were to rejoice in the Lord. Um, and they dedicated these uh, these fruits to God. Um, that was Pentecost. And it's interesting that Jesus himself later on will be called the first, the first fruits of all who believe by virtue of his resurrection. He is the pledge that you and I will be one day raised up from the grave. That is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But beyond Jesus being called the first fruits, the people of God are also said to be the first fruits of God's creation, a kind of first fruits. Um, and that makes sense for the people of God, the believers in Christ, the body of Christ, then to be gathered or to be brought in at Pentecost. So this is what is happening in this occasion. They had come together to celebrate this idea of first fruits, and here is uh, the first fruits of God being gathered in. Now it says of the disciples that they were all together in one place. Notice uh, when it says "all" here, it doesn't refer to uh, the all the all the apostles, all, all the eleven apostles, but rather it refers to the one hundred and twenty disciples. We spoke of them. Last time, they were a congregation of believers that were devoting them, themselves to prayer and to um, fellowship with one another. And it says that at this point, they were all together in this one place. Uh, we don't know precisely what the place was. We know it was close to the temple, as we'll see uh, soon. The people are coming from the temple to see them. Uh, but we know that this place obviously was not the temple because in verse 2 it says that it was a house. Now it's not clear what they were doing here. Uh, we might think of the picture of Parham with his students sort of looking for this coming of the Spirit. But it doesn't seem that these, uh, these believers were actually engaging in something like that because it says that they were seating in verse 2. Um, but people when they prayed oftentimes they were they were standing. So it seems that they were either uh, just having fellowship or perhaps even a meal. And something happens. This is not something that they're looking for, but rather something happens to them. Verse 2 says that suddenly there, there, there came from heaven uh, a noise like a violent rushing wind. Uh, that word for suddenly denotes the idea that this is, again, a surprise. Now, we know from the uh, text before that they were expecting this to happen. Jesus uh, himself told them in verse 5 that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they knew that this was coming, and yet it was a surprise. You say, how come? Well, we know ourselves that Jesus is coming, and we're expecting for Jesus to come at any time, and yet he himself says that when he comes, it'll be as though a thief in the night came. And so this is going to be surprising, and it was also for them. So there's a, there's a, there's a level there of, of uh, surprise. They're not sure what is going on, but... Uh, all of a sudden, something begins 
to happen. And what happened was that they heard a noise. Now, this was not a noise that came from a musical instrument. This was not a noise that came from a sound speaker. This was not a noise produced by anything in this world, but rather it says specifically that it came from heaven. So something is happening that is sudden and something is happening that is supernatural. And Luke says that the noise was like that of a violent rushing wind. A violent rushing wind. The house that they were in, if you think about it, was a, a big house. It could sit 120 people. I don't know if your house is big enough that you can sit 120 people uh, comfortably. So they must have been in a very big house. And Luke is saying here that the whole house was filled with this noise. So this would have been a very loud noise, perhaps even a terrifying sound. Um, maybe what he's doing here is he's alluding to passages like Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. That's uh, the passage in which uh, God divides the Red Sea. And how does he divide the Red Sea? He, divide the, he divides the Red Sea by a wind. Uh, Exodus 14, 21. Sorry, Exodus 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. So here is a mighty wind that could actually push back all the water and divide up the sea. There's another, there's another scene in the, in the scriptures that this may have been alluding to it. And that is in First Kings chapter 19, verse 11. And this is when, when Elijah um, is going to hear the voice of God. And it says in, um, in verse 11 of First Kings 19, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And what does it say? And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. So here comes God. And the first thing that happens is that there is a mighty wind that is strong enough to even break the mountains. And so perhaps uh, Luke is alluding to something like this. This would have been a very loud noise, a very even terrifying thing. And they knew this was the spirit because it sounded like a rushing wind. And Jesus himself had repeatedly um, compared the Spirit of God to wind, right? Uh, in, chap in chapter 3 of John, he, uh, he had compared the Spirit to wind, where he said that the wind blows where it wishes. Uh, John chapter three, the the uh, uh, John chapter three verse eight. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where is it going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus Himself had given them this, His disciples this idea that the Spirit is like the wind, and so now they're hearing this violent rushing wind, and they're perhaps thinking to themselves, "The Spirit is here. The Spirit is coming," but they hear. This, and they think not only spirit, but they also think spirit of power. 
The point of this mighty rushing wind sound is to denote the fact that the Spirit of God is God's power. God's power. Uh, Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6, uh, we all know the text where he says, not, not by strength or by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Not by strength, human strength, not by might, human might, but by my power, my might, my Spirit is what he is saying. In, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, it says that the power of the Most High will overshadow the virgin and she will bear a son. So, the power of God is the Spirit of God. Uh, this is why um, he is even uh, uh, named in the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is, uh, he's named the finger of God, the finger of God. God. And that is because God works by His Spirit. The Spirit of God is the power of God. This is why in creation it says that the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. He is the person of the Godhead that brings about the, the works of God. In the incarnation, again, He is the one who forms the body of the Messiah in the virgin's womb. And you might remember even uh, when you go through the, uh, the Old Testament and the book of Judges, that the judges were filled with the Spirit. And what happened immediately? They had superhuman strength, superhuman power. And then even after that, when the Messiah comes into the scene, He is first filled with the Spirit. The Spirit rests on Him. And then he goes out and fulfills his powerful ministry. So, the Spirit of God is the Spirit of power. And the people of God, they were not clothed with him, right? Um, Luke uh, chapter 24, verse 49. Jesus said to the disciples on that occasion, Don't leave Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on high. That's Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Uh, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The, the assumption there is that the old covenant people of God, they did not, they were not clothed with power. Now, they were uh, within the Old Covenant. Some of them, perhaps even a minority, were regenerate, right? They, 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 they were born again. They were born of the Spirit. Otherwise, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, if an Old Covenant um, man came and said, Jesus is Lord, as all the disciples had done before Pentecost, then that means that it is because the Spirit of God was enabling them to make a Christian confession. And that means that an Old Testament saint could have the Spirit in the sense that that person could be born again. Nevertheless, as the Old Covenant of pe people of God, they did not have Power. They were not clothed with power as a people. As a people, all they had was the law. The law did not give them a new heart. The law did not give them the spirit. The law was good and right, 
But the law did not make them born again. It only condemned them and it only showed them their need of a Messiah. And so what you have here is a covenant people that had no power. And when the Spirit came, He actually came at specific times and to specific individuals. But now He is coming on all the disciples to live and to work in them and to continue in them. Now, you know, the, the charismatics, they, they think of the power of the Spirit, the power of God, and they think immediately, uh, yeah, the power to do healings and the power to perform signs and wonders and so forth and so on. But you have to first ask the question, what were, if the Bible says it, what were these signs for? What were they for? Because many of the people who were healed by Jesus, for example, and by the apostles, many of them, uh, or I should say all of them, who were at one point healed, they still died a natural death. So the miracles were not an end to themselves. They had a different purpose. And the purpose was to validate a message. We understand that. Um, I'll just read for you Romans chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Romans uh, 15, 18 Paul said, therefore, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So what Paul uh, was saying there is that by his by his use of these miracles and these um, manifestations of the Spirit, he had wrought about obedience to the gospel. So the message is being validated by these signs. And that means that outward signs are not necessary once the message has already been validated. Once the message has been validated, there is no need for any outward signs. Nevertheless, what is needed for the power of God to be on display is actually obedience. Obedience to the truth. When you see people obeying the truth, obeying the gospel, then you are looking at a work of power. Why? Well, think about it. The natural man suppresses the truth of God in his unrighteousness. He holds it back. He doesn't want it. Um, Romans chapter 8 verse 7 says that the one who walks by the flesh, he is hostile to God. He does not submit to the law of God. So the unbeliever despises what God has to say. But when you see a person submitting to what God has commanded us to believe, and when, what God commands us to do, then you have a show of power. When you see um, men convicted of their sin and misery and guilt of eternal condemnation and inability to do good, there you see the Spirit at work. In fact, uh, you, can, you, can, you can read that in uh, John chapter 16. 
John 16, this is when Jesus is uh, promising his disciples that the Spirit was going to come. And if you notice in, in those passages where he is repeatedly uh, promising them the paraclete, the coming of the Spirit, he is not so much saying, you guys are going to be able to do all these kinds of miracles and all these wonders and all these stuff. No, what he is focusing on is things like these. Verse 8, and he, the Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So when you see people understanding that they are sinful, that they are miserable, that they are guilty and headed for hell, and that they are unable to change themselves, there you have the power of the Spirit. Moreover, when you also see men converted to Christ, there you have the, the power of the Spirit at work. And you see that in Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 30. Acts 5.30. This is um, when um, Peter is preaching. Uh, 29, he says, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom he has given to those who obey him. So when you see the preaching of the gospel or when you see men and women embracing the fact that God has exalted Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth as the coming Messiah and that he is the one who is the prince and the savior of those who believe, then you are seeing the power of God. You are also seeing the, the, you're, you're also seeing the power of God at work when men turn from their wickedness and sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll begin reading in verse 9. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Past tense. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Now, obviously, Paul is writing these things to the Corinthians who were actually had been converted, and yet they were still engaging in these sins, these very sins. They were still falling into them, and he's telling them, stop doing that because you're no longer that. You're not a gay Christian. You're not a uh, whatever else you might want to say. Uh, that's not your identity anymore. Such, such were some of you, past tense. So stop it. Stop the sinning. But he's saying that that came because you were washed by the Spirit, right? Which means that where you see people renouncing sin, renouncing their identity of sin, then you see the power of God at work. This is again why the gay Christian 
issue is such a contradiction and a blasphemy because you are denying the work of the Spirit Himself who when He comes, He changes your identity. And there you are still saying, no, I am still this uh, sin or that other identity. No, if you are in Christ, you're a Christian and you are a new creature and that is it. So uh, when the Spirit of God is at work, what you see first is not so much uh, signs and wonders. Those were passing. But what you see is conviction of sin. What you see is conversion, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What you see is a renunciation of sin. What you see is pursuit of righteous acts. And that is, we can just go passage after passage. Um, I, I can think immediately of, of Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 22, where it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. Now, the, now to those who, those who belong to, Je to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, if you, the Spirit is, is at work among a people, they have put away their sin and they are pursuing after righteousness. They are marked by love and peace and self-control, so forth and so on. So, the power of God, it revolves around acceptance and embracing of life-changing, life-altering truth. Not so much the miraculous and seeing wonderful things. No, accepting life-changing truth. That is power. That is power. In fact, you might notice back in our text in Acts chapter 2, you might notice that it was... Um, it, it, it wasn't something uh, phenomenal that, that appeared over the disciples, but actually it was tongues, right? It was tongues that appeared over the disciples and rested on them. And that brings me to a second miracle that I want to show you here. So obviously the, the, the first miracle is the miracle of the noise, right? The sound. The sound signifies the power of God coming upon the people of God. But then you have a second miracle, and that is a miracle of sight, um, and it is, creates a visual impression. The other one um, cr created an impression for the ears. This one now creates a visual impression. And it is here in verse 3. It says in verse 3, And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Now, when we read this passage, uh, we, uh, if you're anything like me, uh, we think of those paintings like uh, the one by Jean Restoud in the Louvre, in the Louvre where uh, you have all the disciples and they have these little flames on top of their heads. But actually, it wasn't flames that they had on top of their heads. It was tongues. And not even tongues of fire, but tongues that looked as though they were forked flames from a fire. And it says that they rested on each one of them. All 120 had these tongues resting on them. Now, we say, okay, well, why tongues? Why, uh, why, why is there a tongue on top of 
these people? And the answer, of course, is that the gospel is good news of forgiveness of sins for all who believe in Jesus' name. So it is a verbal proclamation. And each of these 120 were entrusted with a message that they were to announce. Now we say, okay, then why fiery tongues? And uh, the reason is uh, purity. Uh, man's speech is corrupt by nature. Um, Romans chapter 2 uh, speaks of, the, uh, when Paul wants to describe the depravity of man, it begins with the tongue. He's, he says that the poison of venom is on their tongues and their, their throat is an open grave. How would you like to have that said to you because you have bad breath? Uh, that's, not what he's, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the depravity. The depravity of man becomes most obvious by what we say. And uh, James chapter 3 verses 6 through 8 speaks of the, the, the tongue as a, fire set, uh, as, a, as a fire set by hell itself, the fire of hell itself. So man has a corrupt tongue. And it needs purification. This is why Isaiah, when he saw God, what was the first reaction? Whoa. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. It wasn't uh, uh, his eyes or his ears, but first it was his tongue. He knew that what he said betrayed a depraved nature. And he felt it at the tongue most. And so uh, the, the, the angel takes... Uh, a, a, a coal from the altar and brings it and burns his mouth and purifies his mouth. And therefore, you see in this, um, in this passage that we have fiery tongues purified by heavenly fire. We are now purified and made to speak the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, fire also represents judgment, right? Uh, Jeremiah 23, 29, uh, the, the Lord says, Is not my word a fire? And uh, we know that when we speak the gospel, in the hearing of those who are perishing, it's an, an aroma of death to death. It shows them that they are condemned and headed for eternal damnation. So what we're looking at here, though, this coming of these tongues of fire, or these tongues as of fire, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is what is happening here. John the Baptist had predicted that there would come a Messiah who would baptize the people of God with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus then validated that in chapter 1, verse 5, where he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So now this is finally being Fulfilled. They are being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now you say, okay, so what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that is simple. Being added to the body of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll show that to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12. If you want to uh, have a passage that um, is your go-to passage for defining the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, you might want to consider this one. 
And I'll begin reading in verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet um, has many members, and all members uh, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And then if you turn... Another one is Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Um, he says... He says, uh, verse 26, I'll read for context. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus. For all of you, all the believers, all of you, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. So here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. is being baptized or it's being submerged into Christ's body. Uh, it is to be made a member of the invisible church. It is to be united to Christ in such a way that where you go, He goes. This is why Paul uh, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, Are you going to uh, be united to a prostitute knowing that Christ is united to you? You're not going to unite Christ with a prostitute, are you? Because... This is the kind of union that takes place when you are baptized by the Spirit. Um, this is not the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. Um, we are repeatedly commanded to be filled with the Spirit in Scripture, as we'll see. But we are never commanded to be baptized by the Spirit. This is a work of of Jesus Christ that He does. Being filled with the Spirit, we're commanded to do that. Baptized by the Spirit, no, that's Jesus Christ who does that. And for this group, you say, well, they, um, this baptism of the Holy Spirit took place for them at a different time than salvation. Um, and to that, we would say that is true, but that is because they had been saved, and yet there was no officially no body of Jesus Christ in the world, right? Uh, there, it was, the people of God were under a different administration. They, they were under the Old Testament economy. This was now a new economy, so it makes sense that for them, salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit were separated. They were not together in time. And yet, for all of us, after that time, things are different. We are added into Christ's body and justified and regenerated all at the same time. In one moment in time, regeneration, baptism with the Holy Spirit, or being added into the church, the invisible church, that is, and justification, all of those take place at one moment in time. So, uh, the filling of the Spirit, that is something Else, the filling of the Spirit is actually something that happens moment by moment. Baptism of the Spirit, one-time event. This filling of the Spirit is something that happens more than once and moment by moment. So, for example, in this text, uh, Peter, 
he, Peter is part of the group, right? He is part of this group and he is going to be filled with the Spirit, right? We know that because uh, in verse 4, it says that they were all filled with the Spirit, right? But then it is going to say in chapter 4, verse 8, again, that he was filled with the Spirit. So he had been filled with the Spirit in, in chapter 2, verse 4. And then is, it, uh, the text is going to say that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, so forth and so on. And then Stephen himself, it will be said of him in chapter 6, verse 5, if you look at that, um, that he was a man full of the Spirit. And by that, what, what, um, what the text means is that he was habitually uh, being full of the Spirit. He was habitually filling, being filled with the Spirit. So it says in verse 5, the statement, the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And so they saw that he would be a wise administrator of the goods of the church and to be able to distribute them, and they, they picked him as because he was one who was habitually filled with the Holy Spirit. But then if you go to chapter 7 and verse 55, when he is preaching to the leaders of Israel, uh, he gets all of a sudden full of the Spirit again. Verse 55, being full of the Spirit. He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then, of course, um, to all of this, we can add Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, where it says that, spirit, the, that the, um, the people of God, the Christians, are to walk by the Spirit. That means walk by the Spirit moment by moment, step by step, step by step. Be going in the direction that the Spirit is leading you. So, baptism of the Spirit happens once. Now, it happened for in the book of Acts, it happens several times because it happens to the Jews here. This is a crowd of Jews who had come for Pentecost, even though they had come from all over the place, from different countries of the world. They were nonetheless Jewish people. And so it happens to the Jews. And then it's going to happen again to the Samaritans because Jesus said, bring the gospel to Jerusalem, Samaria and Judea, and then to the rest of the world. So it happens to the Samaritans in chapter 8, verses uh, 15 and on. And then it's going to happen to the Gentiles in chapter 10. You might remember Cornelius' household. They are going to be baptized with the Spirit and they are going to speak in tongues. And then it's going to happen a fourth time to the remnant of Old Testament saints, the uh, disciples of John the Baptist, who had never heard that there was uh, a teaching uh, that the Spirit had come. And so they are also going to be brought in. But again, all of this is different historical manifestation of one thing, and that is that, this, that, that these groups were being added as groups into the body of Christ. Now, if you're a Jew... Um, you're already included in the crowd of Pentecost. If you're a Gentile, you were already included in the crowd of uh, Cornelius and uh, the other Gentiles who received that baptism of the Spirit, as it were. As a group, we already have been added in. And as individuals, we are baptized by the Spirit the moment that we are 
converted, the moment that we are born again. For, uh, so what we're looking at here in Acts chapter 2 is an isolated event. And it was actually designed to create an impression, a powerful impression. Uh, an impression for the eyes. And that was these tongues uh, coming. And there is another uh, uh, miracle uh, that happens here. And that is the speaking of tongues. And we're going to look at that now. Uh, and that is uh, 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 an impression, you might say, of the mouths of the believers. So they had been, they, uh, their, 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 their ears have heard, had heard the coming, the noise of the coming of the Spirit. The uh, eyes had seen the coming of the tongues. And now their even mouths are going to uh, be impressed with the fact that now there has been a change in the economy of God's covenant. And that is that now the church is God's people. So, uh, verse 4. Verse 4 of um, Acts 2 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, notice, by the way, that the, the, the emphasis on the all here. All. There's, a, there's a, uh, an all together in one place in verse 1. Then there is the, a mention of the whole house, including all the disciples that were there in verse 2. And then they, um, there is a men, uh, mention in verse 3 of the tongues resting on each one of the disciples. And now it says again that, that all were filled with the Spirit. So the point here is that uh, uh, the, the miracle of tongues isn't, isn't something that took place or uh, takes place, as, as uh, some would argue, to uh, an elite group or uh, the super spiritual. No, but rather in this occasion, every single disciple was filled with the Spirit and every disciple spoke in tongues after being baptized by the Spirit. Uh, tongues, of course, is languages. Uh, it says other tongues. Those are uh, languages other than Greek and Aramaic, which would have been the native uh, language of the uh, disciples of Jesus. But we know that this is not gibberish, right? This was uh, not nonsense, uh, because in verses 8 through 11, they mention, hey, we are hearing them speak in the languages that we were born to, Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia. They were hearing these men speaking actual language. In fact, uh, Parham, the founder of the Pentecostal movement, he understood that and he knew that. This is why when the Pentecostal movement began, the argument was that they were speaking real languages, Chinese, Russian, Japanese. They were saying that they were actually speaking languages. However, later on, when it became clear that these weren't languages, then there was a shift in the story. And now we are speaking of, well, heavenly languages. But from the beginning, they understood that what happened at Pentecost was not the speaking of gibberish. It was the speaking of actual language. And it, when you look at the charismatic movement, what you're going to find is a chaotic movement of people just speaking on top of each other and just, and, and, and just uh, naming all the uh, 
Japanese brands that they could think of. I should have bought a Honda, but I got a Yamaha. And then I, and then I got a Hyundai. Uh, <laughs> and so, and they're saying all these things on top of each other. But that's not what happened here. Uh, there was an order here. Notice that it says that this was happening as the Holy Spirit was giving them utterance. And uh, the, the, the expression giving them, the verb to give there, it's uh, in the graphic imperfect in the Greek, which means that, that, that he kept giving them utterance. So one would speak in a certain language, and he would deliver a, cer a certain message, and then the next guy would come up, and now this one can speak Persian, and this one can speak uh, a different language, the language of Asia, the languages of Asia, or Cappadocia, etc., etc. So there was an order to all of this. Uh, they were obviously addressing may maybe smaller groups or individuals, because later on, Peter will address the whole crowd, right? But they were all doing this in order. It wasn't just a chaotic issue. Um, and um, this was obviously miraculous. It came on suddenly. Uh, you know, the Charismatics, they have seminars that teach you how to speak in tongues, uh, or you can read a book on how to, how to speak in tongues. And yet, this is not happening in that way at all. This is happening immediately. Out, out of the sudden, these people could speak languages that perhaps they had never heard themselves in their lives spoken they could speak those miraculously, uh, and they could speak those words of praise. Uh, in fact, it says that they, that they were being given utterance. That word is used for, for uh, a speech that is, that is uh, emotive, it is exalted, and yet it is rational. Uh, uh, Paul says, I am, uh, this, the, this, the word for utterance appears three times in the book of Acts, and it's used here, it's used of Peter when he's preaching, and it is also used of Paul when he is speak, defending himself. And he says, I am using words that are rational. When he is defending himself that he was not mad by his learning. And he uses this word for utterance. So these were intelligent words. This was not gibberish. So we say, okay, so then why tongues? Why was this happening in the first place? And the answer to that is that this was a judgment on the nation of Israel. They had uh, not sought out the world or brought the world to themselves. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, Paul says, he quotes from the Old Testament saying, I will speak in a language that you do not understand. So what was happening is that the people of Israel were being judged here. And um, they were, uh, the, 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 the world now was being given the, um, the entrance into the covenant of God. And so uh, this, uh, all of this was produced by a people who were filled with the Spirit. So they had been baptized by the Spirit in verse 3. And now in verse 4, immediately they are filled with the Spirit. And they speak in tongues. The, 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 um, the word um, to be filled with the Spirit, that, that expression, you want to think of it as being controlled by the Spirit. In fact, a good illustration of that is Ephesians 5.18 that says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. 
right? So there is a direct correlation between what wine does to you and what the Spirit does to you. What does wine do to you? It controls you. It leads you. You, it, you do what wine does, uh, want, wants you to do when you are drunk, right? But in this case, the point here is that the Spirit is leading you, that you are doing everything that is in accordance with faith in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Now, the, the charismatics, they don't see this. They, they see being filled with the Spirit only as a kind of mystical experience. If I'm, if I'm having a, a, a unique time in, in my worship experience, if, if I'm feeling a certain way, then I'm filled with the Spirit. Or at the, at the height of that is really being able to speak in tongues. Being able to speak in tongues. Uh, but if you look even at the book of Acts itself, you'll find that there were instances in which being filled with the Spirit did not produce speaking in tongues. It actually produced other things. So, for example, in chapter 4, verse 8, uh, when, when it says that uh, Peter was filled with the Spirit, the result was not that he spoke in tongues, but rather that he spoke boldly. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. So he spoke boldly when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 6, verses 3 and 5, again, touching on the story of Stephen, he was habitually filled with the Holy Spirit, and that didn't mean that he was speaking in other languages. It actually meant that he had a wise spirit of administration, that he, could, uh, he was an effective steward of uh, resources, and therefore the church, the church showed him, uh, uh, chose him for the task of administering the, the goods for the people. Now, in Ephesians chapter 18, and I'm not going to take you there uh, for the sake of time, but in Ephesians chapter 18... Um, the feeling of the Spirit is marked by... I'm sorry, what? Chapter 5, verse 18. 18, yeah. Verse, chapter 5, verse 18. Oh, 518. <laughs> Did I say Ephesians, Ephesians 18? <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, thanks. Okay, so Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, um, the, was written at a time where there is no need anymore for Christianity to be validated. This was later on in history. And you don't find there, hey, be filled with the Spirit, therefore speak in tongues. No, but rather, what do you see? Is actually thankfulness, singing, submitting to one another. That's what it meant to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18 uh, It says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Doing what? Speaking in tongues? No. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So you have there uh, being filled with the Spirit, defined as, not as the speaking in, in gibberish, but rather as being a thankful person, being a person who sings the praises of God, who speaks the psalms of God to other people, and being one who is submissive. And uh, also in Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, 
being filled or led by the Spirit means killing sin. Right? If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's a powerful verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, uh, the world at this point was being shown, not that from that moment on, uh, to be a Christian was to speak in all these other languages. That was not the point. No, the point was that um, Israel had been judged. And now the, the people of God is made up of, of peoples from all kinds of backgrounds, from um, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And beyond that, uh, the world was seen by the entire thing, the noise and the and and and, and the, the coming of the tongues of fire and the speaking forth of this. They were seeing that a new covenant had come, that a new administration, a new era, an era of the spirit. Uh, at creation, the angels they sang and shouted for joy. At the incarnation, the hosts of heaven, they sang the praises of God. And at Pentecost, the church itself proclaimed in many languages the workings of God. So, what does all of this mean? Well, that the charismatic movement, as much as it has over half a billion adherents, is founded on sand. That's scary. Uh, Pentecost is no more to happen again than the first creation or the incarnation. This was a one-time event. This is a one-time event. But what the event does teach us is that we are to live self-controlled lives devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to living out the gospel and proclaiming the same gospel for others to be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for uh, allowing us to understand this thing. And uh, we, we pray um, that you would give us to even uh, help others who have so been confused by charismatic theology. Um, to, to help them uh, with the truth. I pray that um, you would be honored in our stewardship of what you are giving to us in the scriptures. Uh, please bless us uh, the rest of our evening. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.